Okay, good afternoon, everyone. This is day three of our Pacific Hermitage Birkin retreat with Ajahn Sona on the theme of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And this is our tea time Q&A session here in the virtual Birkin Tea Room. And uh, we had an increase in questions coming in from people today. So we have selected quite a few questions here uh, on the theme of our retreat, following on from uh, the instructions that Ajahn Sona has given in his uh, previous talks. Just a quick programming note, there's been a few questions about how you can join the Zoom room. And uh, the Zoom room participants are for people that originally re registered for the physical retreat at Birkin Monastery. This is an experiment, very first time we've done anything like this. So, and indeed we had almost 500 people register and uh, I don't, that'd be a bit much for me to manage um, taking questions from 500 people. So a reminder, we do have a form and people can submit questions before 9 a.m. every day on birkin.ca and the stewards up at Birkin have also been putting uh, a link in the show description on YouTube. So please look to that and, and uh, be encouraged to submit questions uh, on the theme of the retreat and in particular on the theme of Ajahn's previous night's talk if possible. And we'll select a, a few of the best of those to integrate with our discussions we have here at 4 p.m. So, okay, well, it looks like everyone is gathered. So let's go ahead and I'll start off with a couple of the questions that came in from the retreatants. Um, Mariam, uh, would you like to ask your question first? Um, yes, thank you, Ajahn. Hmm. I wanted to see if it's possible to get some guidance and, uh, and meditation um, with regard to the 32 body parts as well as the four elements, please. Hmm. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't know if Ajahn's going to uh, address the four elements, but you know, there's if you look in the writings of Ajahn Chah and some of the force masters, um, this is a theme that they talked about. Um, sometimes giving a bit of detail, uh, but you know, oftentimes, you know, they really just focus on this as one of many ways to sort of um, take this kind of construction of the body apart, because as Ajahn was talking about last night, there's just such a solid identification of this as me, as mine, as myself. Um, and so both in the four elements meditation and the 32 parts of the body meditation, it's a way to sort of divide the body up and see it as causally conditioned, an amalgamation of parts, if you will, that kind of comes together in a particular fashion, based on various causes and conditions, and then in time ceases. Uh, one of the most, there are places in the suttas where both meditation practices are, are talked about. So you could look to some of the sutta references. Uh, the place I started off was looking at the Visuddhimagga, 
when I was a young monk. I was particularly interested in this contemplation of the 32 parts of the body. And there's a almost exhaustively detailed uh, commentarial means of how one would set that up as a meditation. Um, I experimenting with it over time and listening to the teachings of different forest ajans, I think one should feel a license to uh, you know, understand what the goals of the practice are. And Ajahn spoke to those last night. It's about overcoming mm. excessive positivity and negativity. Like he used the analogy of magnetism, like a piece of metal that is uh, liable to being positively or negatively attracted and repulsed uh, by this feature of nature known as the body. Uh, but also, you know, to overcome attachment to the body. And many of the forest ajans kind of stress what a huge hurdle this is um, for us in our practice. The cherishing of the body, um, the very uh, sticky nature of how much of our sense of self is bound up in the body can be broken up apart or at least questioned and explored uh, in a way by using both these these two practices of the 32 parts of the body and the four elements because you're you're practicing sort of seeing them as components and as constructed as opposed to a thing and in particular my thing uh, and I I found over the years that while going into the 32 parts can be a useful um, especially for some period of time I think one could build quite a solid practice around this, just just focusing on the five external elements. Um, or you can come up with other ways of dividing the body up um, as you like. So in summary, like turn to the Visuddhi Maga, the basics of it are encapsulated in a chant that is in the uh, Amravati Abhayagiri chanting book. And... As with many things, I recommend memorizing that if you'd like to use that as a meditation and a contemplation. Uh, memorize those 32 parts. In the Visuddhi Magga, there's some useful tips about how to approach that. They break them up into groups of five. So like that first five that Ajahn talked about in his Dhamma talk last night, you start with that and you learn it in forward and reverse. And then you learn the next grouping of five in forward and reverse and then the next grouping of five and because it's very difficult just to memorize a list of 32 things so there's a way to kind of break that down where you you memorize those things and then the basic instructions that are there in the Visuddhi Magga is to start off with a, a sense of the reality of that thing like where is it what is its nature what does it look like and then there's uh encouragement to sort of see the the unbeautiful nature of that. Like any any sight has a, a positive and negative way that we can apprehend it. Um, and in the cultivation of this practice, we want to pay particular attention to uh, cultivating the one that's more difficult, which is like the, the unbeautiful nature of that. So like take with hair, hair of the head, some of the suggestions are to conjure an image of 
the hair or a perception of the hair as unbeautiful, um, which helps kind of break the attraction to that. And then one not just kind of recites it, but they bring that up for contemplation in the mind to practice uh, arousing that perception or um, being able to sort of connect with that, that, that side of um, the element of the body and then moving through the body. And then also in the Vasudhi Magga, with many, as with many of the reflective contemplations, there's some instruction or pointers to, to notice uh, if one of these kind of leaps out or seems a bit more attractive for further investigation. And, uh, and I would often do that, especially when I was just kind of practicing with the five elements. And uh, one that I used to like to focus on a lot was the teeth. Um, and for a couple of reasons. Um, one very trivial, many people mistakenly think that my name Sudanto is good teeth because Su as a prefix means good and Danta is the Pali word for teeth. Um, it's not what my name means. My Sudanto means well-tamed or well-trained. Um, comes from Danda, which is a stick. You used to name an animal in old times. Um, so I thought it was kind of fun to sort of uh, contemplate not having good teeth uh, as a young man. Uh, but also I, I thought of the external five body parts that one might kind of contemplate. Teeth are interesting because they are, I mean, either we can consider them bones or like bones, but they're certainly part of a skeleton. And it, at Wat Nanachat, where I ordained, we had a skeleton in the, main Dhamma hall right off to the left side of the shrine for most of the time I was training there. And uh, monks would spend time in the main hall doing walking meditation, or sometimes you can sit and contemplate this skeleton. And it, it occurred to me that this is the only part of the skeleton that we ever share with each other uh, as living beings. When you're walking around and someone opens their mouth and you see their teeth you're seeing the skeleton, at least a little bit of it exposed. And having spent many hours kind of meditating on um, the skeleton in the Dhamma Hall at Wat Pananachat, um, I could look at someone's body and see the teeth and that reality, or I could easily kind of visualize that sort of skeleton that is there as one of the 32 components of the body or one of those kind of classifications. Um, and I could see my own looking in the mirror or seeing the reflection in the window. Uh, and of course, that then also starts to connect a little bit with the nine cemetery contemplations and contemplating a, 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 the decaying stages of corpse and a, a skeleton. Um, and most importantly, my own, something I've been carrying around my whole life, but not too identified with and something not that I think about a whole lot unless I'm practicing this kind of meditation. So I would look to those. Uh, I won't say so much about the four elements. It's possible I'm going to be talking about them a little later. Um, but the general guidance there is it's another way, like a four-part model of sort of analyzing or breaking up a whole, in particular the body. This body is composed of 
earth, wind, fire, water. And this modeling system, you find a lot of uh, societies, a lot of cultures, a lot of different sort of teachings. It wasn't unique to Buddhism. It was a very simple, direct, elemental observation that ancient people had in a way of breaking something down or analyzing something. And oftentimes, earth, wind, fire, water, um, the, the instructions one would be given is, is not to just think of it as dirt and wind and fire and, and water, but also like, what are the properties of those things? So earth is solidity and mass. Wind is motion and movement. Fire is the heat element, either the absence of heat or the presence of heat. And water is cohesion. So, you know, you can think of those elements and use that as a way to sort of uh, perceive what is here. And that's also a very interesting kind of meditative and contemplative sort of exercise. Um, and it it pierces that solid sort of sense of the body as me, as mine, as myself. Uh, so those are a few uh, pointers for you there, Mariam. So, Thank you very much, Ajahn. Sure. Okay, well, let's go next to uh, Michael from Portland. Michael, you want to ask your question? Yeah. Hi, Ajahn. Hi. Uh, so my question was around the distinction between internal and external. Uh, Ajahn Sona mentioned the five kind of um, parts and um, used the term external as in outside of this body. I was curious if that's the correct distinction to draw or if it's um, external as in other bodies. Well, is it? I don't know if this is textually correct, but you know, I've always taken it as a con contemplative um, in both ways, because you know, obviously, we have internal and external uh, parts of our body, um, but also, you know, we can't help but um, notice other people and what's going on around other people, and that kind of presents us a a fertile ground for kind of using these tools and contemplating. So mostly, mostly in regards to the external, I'm thinking about that as like other people. So, and like this skeleton contemplation I was talking about, like, you know, it's not my skeleton, it's a skeleton of another person that was hanging in this case um, in the monastery and very useful for contemplation. So, uh, you know, the answer is really kind of both. Uh, I think you had a follow-up question. Yeah, in the case of contemplating other bodies, especially attractive ones, do you have recommendations on maybe the safest approach to engage with that so that you don't get kind of swept away? Yeah, it's, uh, you have to, one does want to be, uh, careful with that, especially if you're in a very sensitive mm, place, like in, in the midst of a retreat situation or as a monastic, you know, once one wants to be extra careful or if you're practicing the precepts, 
practicing uh, a period of celibacy. Um, so yeah, you want to be you want to be careful about that. And you know, there's a lot of encouragement to practice sense restraint for the monks. And part of that is so that they are not swept away by the sign of the attractive, but also the sign of the uh, unattractive. So, like, look to the, look to some of the teachings around how the Buddha uh, encourages monastics to practice sense restraint. Uh, you know, the way this whole notion of what something being attractive or unattractive isn't an objective perception. And as one starts to study how it is that we apprehend things and how these perceptions based on our karma, based on our preferences, based on our desires and our identification comes to be, um, you see that it's, it's somewhat sort of arbitrary. Um, and, you know, if you, if you even look at the whole activity of viewing other people, um, you know, this is something I, I kind of noticed even before I came to Buddhism was interested in these types of contemplations. Uh, I can't remember when it first dawned on me, probably uh, in my early teens. You know, I noticed like when I would see somebody, uh, especially of the opposite sex who was attractive, how the mind would launch into this process of trying to discern what are the most attractive bits? Like, what is it that I find attractive about this person? Is it their hair? Is it their eyes? Is it their um, something about the way their body is proportioned? Is it the, the sound of their voice? Uh, and I, I found that, I remember as that started to dawn on me, um, that the mind was actually doing some sort of work here. And generally, trying to figure out, am I attracted to this person? Why am I attracted to this person? What's attractive about this person? And, and I would notice this process of trying to magnify this, what the Buddha calls the sign of the attractive. So if it's the eyes or it's the voice, you think, oh, yes, that's beautiful. And this kind of reverberation or intensification of the sign of the beautiful and the perception starts to grow and, and build. You're, you're psyching yourself up. You're convincing yourself. Um, that is good. That is attractive. That is beautiful. And at the same time you're doing that, you're, you're kind of minimizing some of the competing signs of that which is unattractive. Like you say, somebody looks very beautiful. And then you hear them talking and their voice doesn't strike you as beautiful. You know, if you want to be attracted to them, um, your mind will do a little work trying to sort of magnify uh, the sign of the beautiful and crowd out and turn down the sign of the unbeautiful. Uh, and so that's that's that very process and starting to become aware of how that process works how volition is working uh as we seize upon these various signs is a really uh, important thing to notice in oneself and that also informs and aligns very nicely with the buddha's teaching on sense restraint so you know if you want to kind of 
this is one way to kind of contemplate that. And it doesn't just have to be about bodies. I mean, you can really apply that to sort of anything in the sense realm, anything in your life. What is it that's attractive about it? How is it that I uh, assign that? Uh, And then how does volition and desire and identification play a role uh, in supporting that sort of sankara, sort of forming, arising, solidifying, intensifying? Um, For things that aren't overwhelming, you can sometimes kind of um, see if you can flip that around in a way, sort of like talk yourself down or, you know, just slow that process down or even return to a sense of normalcy. Like, yeah, that's just the sign of the beautiful. Because, you know, if there's desire and if there's identification, then I I find there's like an intensification going on there because we we want to be attracted to things. We want to find beauty. We, we relish the pleasure of being amidst uh, the sign of the attractive and the beautiful, uh, and we loathe to be with that which is unbeautiful. Um, and so it, it speaks to our our desire structure. And there is a way as a practitioner that we can start to sort of learn how to step outside of that and, and just notice what's going on. And in some way, just notice that's that's a pleasant sensation or that's an attractive sight. That's a beautiful sound. So, you know, that's one way to work with it. Um, You know, if we're talking about uh, sexual desire, especially as monks, there's a lot of caution, of course, and a lot of care that's encouraged um, to be careful of there. I had had a really profound experience when I was a novice monk. Uh, A few senior monks that I lived with took us on a forest wandering up in the north of Thailand. And we wandered through the uh, province of Chiang Mai in the mountains for several days, working our way to this little forest hermitage that was uh, uninhabited, is a well-known way stop for Tudong monks and forest monks to um, spend time at and practice. And there were many such places in this one region of Chiang Mai. And as a novice, it's such an exciting opportunity um, to be able to go and do this because oftentimes you need to train for many years before your teacher will give you permission to go off and and practice Tudong or wander in the forest. And these are some of the same regions that the great monks like uh, Lumpur Mun and Lumpur Singh and uh, Lumpur Wan sort of spent a lot of their life practicing Dhamma. So it was just an amazing experience to have in one of my first years as a monastic. And uh, the group I was with from Wat Nanachat, we we arrived at this little forest hermitage. And by design, we were going to spend, I forget how many days, uh, practicing together in this little hermitage, having our own retreat. And there was a, a village nearby that we could go to for alms. And the villagers there were known to be very encouraging and supportive of force monks. So we were practicing, I believe I was practicing about 12 hours a day, at least um, during this, this period of retreat and, and all the monks were putting forth a, a lot of effort. 
keeping silence and we had uh, some group sits and chanting through the day. Uh, and I remember somewhere maybe midway or two thirds of the way through the retreat, um, we had several hours of practice in the morning. We walked down into the village and there's a very full set of protocols of how a monk is to walk for alms. And in Thailand, where this tradition of uh, alms mendicancy has existed for hundreds of years, um, the, the, the people sort of understand uh, in great detail sort of the deportment that the monk should be keeping. And, and, um, and so, you know, we're all very serious about this. We, you walk, you don't walk too fast. You don't walk too slow. As Ajahn Sona was saying, you make sure your robes are worn nicely and evenly. You look presentable. Try to keep mindful the whole time you're walking. And then you look down about a plow's length ahead of yourself. So you're not looking about at all. And then the senior monk might need to sort of look here or there to see if donors are coming. But if you're not the senior monk, then you're encouraged just to look at the ground six or eight feet in front of you or at the feet of the monk in front of you and keep an even distance. And so this is, it's quite an interesting sight seeing a, a group of, of monastics walking through the village in early morning like this in such a restrained way. It's, it's very powerful. Um, but I remember this one day when we, we walked down there and my practice was going really well. Um, the things I would struggle with, though, were the meal, because we're living in such an ascetic way that the meal was a very exciting uh, one-time opportunity of the day, as Ajahn referenced in his talk. And then also, I was in the north amongst these hill villages and everything, someplace I'd never been. And of course, I was very curious about the people in the area. So when we walk into town, uh, the mind was hungry for sights and to look around and to sort of take in uh, what was going on in the town. And there was this kind of tussle in my mind between being dedicated to my monastic vows and the deportment that we're supposed to be practicing and the very ideal of it, like, you know, doing that sort of in a very thorough and pure way to protect my mind. And we walked into town one morning and we're walking down and I'm looking eyes downcast and somehow in the periphery of my vision i saw a person approaching us maybe 500 at least 500 yards up the uh, road in this the dirt road in this little village and you know it was just in the upper part of my eye and just fuzzy peripheral sort of sensation of light uh, and I was watching the mind very carefully and I saw it kind of come together as human. And then somehow before I could even think of the word, the perception that it was a woman or it was the sign of the feminine as opposed to a male sort of started to dawn on me. And I could just see this extra pull or this extra excitement to want to turn to the sign of the beautiful or to get more information because it was literally just a smear of maybe green and white and some other kind of colors. Um, it was just in the upper part of my peripheral vision and just, just a furry 
um, amalgamation of light rays. And I could just, and it was so, so clear, like how that sort of comes together and how volition then sort of uh, feeds into that and starts to kind of play a role. And, and, and I could see the, the desire and especially the desire connected with the idea that it was a woman uh, and maybe a young woman and maybe an attractive woman. Uh, and uh, it's very, it's very interesting um, to see it like in that kind of detail. Uh, and I, th- I think it's a useful, I think it's a useful story um, relating to your question of how to contemplate this. Because in a period of uh, a retreat and with the practicing of sense restraint uh, and a kind of heightened sort of mindfulness, uh, I think we can, we can learn some very inter- interesting and nuanced sort of details about how the senses work and how it is that volition is, is sort of playing a role here. So a bit of a, a long-winded answer to a, a short question but uh, let's go to Charles next from Portland good afternoon Ajahn. good afternoon Charles that's a, that's a tough one to follow <laughs> that's okay just uh, kind of in general I'm wondering if you would please comment on the relationship and practice between mindfulness of breathing and this uh, mindfulness of postures and positions of the body. Hmm. And especially, you know, listening now to Ajahn Sona, cultivating the positive mental states. How does that all start to fit together? Hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, I, you, you submitted your question in writing, and when I looked at it, I thought, you know, my on a first read, it's like, not quite sure where you want to go with the relationship bit there. I mean, they they are sort of peers in the Satipatthana Sutta, both very valid ways that one completes our practices, mindfulness of the body. Um, You know, so they're, they're, they're one of two different strategies and there's, I forget how many, many strategies are listed in the, in the uh, Satipatthana or the Maha Satipatthana Sutta. But, you know, any of them are fine as a way to putting forth right effort for the overcoming of covetousness and grief in regards to the world, which is kind of shorthand for overcoming the five hindrances. So, you know, uh, the relationship is there. It's like, just think of it as two different meditation objects. Um, And I don't know if you're thinking of like an inner relationship about how to do both those practices or balance both those practices, but I, I really just think of them as either or. They're choices that you can make about how to put forth right effort. Well, thank you for that. Uh, for some reason, I, I'm still I'm, I'm kind of wanting to investigate like almost like an interactive uh, relationship or, or use of, say, the breath while moving or how that might play out in, in the activities of daily life or in chosen movements such as yoga. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that is quite possible. And there's a question that we're, maybe we'll get to later. Somebody was asking about that. And breath meditation is my main form of meditation that I do. And I've experimented integrating that into all kinds of things like loving kindness meditation, 
um, contemplation of selflessness, uh, walking meditation, standing meditation. So, I mean, there can be a, an integration uh, of breath meditation with mindfulness of the postures. Because, uh, you know, sometimes mindfulness of the posture isn't enough to overcome the hindrances. Like the mind needs something more. And attending to the breath does require more of us. Uh, it's more ephemeral. It's more subtle. And so I would say, you know, the, the level of mindfulness and the challenge of sticking with it in some of the various situations we find ourselves in our day is it takes a little extra challenge. So if you want to add, I, sometimes I think of these as handles, want to add an extra handle onto your um, meditative technique, then you can just throw the breath in there as well and see if you can uh, integrate that. Uh, and, and it does integrate quite nicely into um, movement. So, and, you know, if you're just, say you're just hiking or you're just out for a walk, you're not even doing formal meditation. Something wrong with like fluidly moving back and forth between being with the breath for a little while and then being with a, a more global sense of the body moving through space. There's times where I was walking Tudong in Thailand and was spending six or eight hours of the day um, hiking or walking rural country roads to move from one area to another or find another monastery or um, hermitage to spend some time at. And you know, we're spending the majority of our energy and the majority of our day walking. And I would divide my time up in, in various ways. I mean, sometimes I would just be doing as I described, kind of just watching over the mind, sometimes attending to the body, sometimes going to the breath. Sometimes I'd be um, doing a reflective practice. Uh, and with some of the practices, you'll notice they tend to become a little wearisome, especially the more discursive ones and contemplating Dhamma. And so then you might kind of return to the breath to kind of strengthen certain conditions or refresh the mind uh, to give it uh, strength uh, in sort of practicing one of the other practices we have. So I hope that kind of speaks to your curiosity there. Yeah, yes, thank you. Maybe I'm not very uh, literal about how I interpret the text, but I, I really think, and I see in the text, like a, a freedom to be creative with how it is that we implement our practice. And, you know, the more you really understand the fundamentals and what it is we're trying to do, I think there's great latitude for being creative with our practice. Okay, let's see. Next, let's go to Shelley from White Sam in Washington, my hometown. Shelley, do you have a question for us? Hello, Ajahn. Hi. This is a question about the body being the string that uh, Ajahn Sona referred to last night. Mm -hmm. um, connecting the body to keeping the keeping the thoughts, or keeping the mind in place. 
a quick scan of the body when I sit meditation typically shows I have much tension in my face. Mm. I sometimes wonder if it reflects karma from my past day. What? What could that mean? I don't have an answer. I don't always take the time to relax the face, which takes quite a bit of concentration. And I prefer just to go to the breath as soon as possible. Of course, I do miss out on the period of relaxation. I don't always do what I should. Is there a best practice? Um, well, I, I don't know if there's a best practice. Um, but, you know, it's kind of speaking to the first part of your question, it's maybe more than just comma from your day, although that's one way you can sort of think about it. Um, you know, it's patterns of stress, tension, holding, it's dukkha. Uh, <laughs> the symptoms of accumulated dukkha through the day, maybe, as well. Um, and it's quite common. Uh, I, I know the feeling. I do something similar myself. Like I feel tension sort of build up in the jaw and the face. And it can be a very useful preliminary meditation just to spend some time noticing that and relaxing it out um, as a way to start to remove some of the tension and, and, and develop a sense of ease. But then at the same time, you're, you're, you are developing some of the same qualities that are going to support doing um, breath meditation. But there's no best, I wouldn't say there's a best practice there, but it, it might be for you that just simply going to the breath is more effective because if the quality of the meditation that you develop on the breath is strong enough, uh, eventually this will relax out. Uh, especially as one starts to near uh, a more full sense of serenity and samadhi. Like, you know, if one reaches a, a full state of samadhi or jhana in particular, all the holding and tension of the body is discharged. So, you know, rather than just like starting off and spending much time working with the face, it might be more effective just to go to the breath and start the process of developing sort of the jhana or developing samadhi. And then that will work its way out. And I don't think you have to pick one or the other, but there, there can be a little bit of danger in fiddling around with some of the symptoms of stress and dukkha uh, too much and for too long, rather than kind of going to some, something that's more high leverage, like just diving into sort of developing the, the meditation. So. Well, as a follow-up, mm -hmm. this afternoon in sitting, I thought I would, in reflection, I don't really know. It seemed I was in a pretty um, peaceful state. And then all of a sudden, my finger was in my eye, scratching my eye. <laughs> and, I, and I really thought, well, how much samadhi could I have if I... There was a disconnect. I didn't think 
oh, my eye is itchy, I'd better scratch it. It just happened. Well, I think it's safe to assume that you weren't in the fourth jhana. Uh, and you probably weren't even in the first jhana if you're scratching your eye. Because, um, you know, if one's in that profound a state, um, one wouldn't be compelled to scratch one's eye generally. I didn't even know it. It happened without me saying, oh, scratch my eye, though. <laughs> yeah, but the mind is so kind of beyond um, thinking about the body as it kind of moves through that progression, that those things kind of relax out. And yet you, you can even have a clear perception at some lower state of pain being there, but it's almost like there's this disturbance going on at the neighbor's house and you just don't care. Like you're so mm -hmm. happy. That's all right. Yeah. Okay. They're playing that horrible music again. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, yeah, there's a itch or an irritation or a little pain down there, but because you don't care and you're not attached and there's no desire, it's, it's not something you feel like you need to intervene to rectify it all. It's just, and then the mind usually kind of is off doing other things. So it's, it's kind of forgotten or not attended to. Uh, so. Thanks. Okay. Now, let's see. I've been trying to watch for people putting their hands up, but I don't see any hands. So I'm going to keep moving on through the questions here. Uh, this question is from Marilyn from Vancouver, Canada. Well, the idea of being able to think what we want to and not what we don't seems like a marvelous goal, maybe enough in itself. But surely it's not the goal. We, uh, wouldn't we still have a sense of self to deal with and desire? Don't we need to be done with those before we're fully liberated? So, and Marilyn, I, I would just agree surely it's not the goal. No, it's not the goal. Um, I think the Buddha is just trying to describe where he's at uh, mentally and aff affirm that, you know, that kind of thing is possible. And um, he has uh, a mind and a heart that is powerful enough that um, he can think what he wants to, and he doesn't have to think about what he doesn't. Like he's in control of the mind, but he never states that as the goal of practice. Um, the goal is to uh, understand dukkha, to overcome dukkha. Uh, and, you know, as you reference here, dealing with the self and desire is integral to that kind of process. And more often than not, the way he's talking about the goal is including those concepts and not mind control or being able to think or not think something. Uh, but still, that is something that happens in his mind. So. Okay, next question is from Trevor from, I don't know how to pronounce this, Gluff, Canada. I might, we might need some pronunciation help from our questioners here. G-U-E-L-P-H, Gluff, Canada. I, I, think just, it's, I think it's Guelph. Guelph, okay. Thank Guelph, you. Ontario. Guelph, Ontario. Okay, thanks. Uh, Ajahn Sidanto. Ajahn Sona's teaching of last night discussed the idea of contemplation of the physical body 
contemplation of the hair, nails, teeth, and skin. I find that this, as well as other important contemplations, can become an intellectual inner exercise if I'm not in a meditative or focused state. When I'm doing my meditation, however, I'm focused on the breath and minimizing the inner dialogue that this contemplation can become. Can you please provide guidance as to the most valuable time to develop true and deep understanding of subjects of contemplation? Would it be towards the end of a meditation session or after a meditation session or other? Thank you for your guidance. So, so Trevor, um, I don't know that there's a most kind of valuable time. Uh, you know, there's there as I as I was kind of saying a little earlier. I think there's a lot of latitude for how it is that you put together. There's a very common question though how how do we balance out uh, the need to develop serenity and also the need to sort of contemplate. And there's many different approaches. And you know what? One thing Ajahn Chah would say is develop as much serenity as you can. And then, you know, once the mind is as calm as possible, as clear as possible, then uh, use that mind, which is so fit for contemplation, to explore themes of Dhamma or to contemplate the mind. So it's like you develop the mind and then you turn that, that sort of clarity towards trying to understand the mind itself and um, understand these themes of Dhamma that we're talking about, studying, thinking about, contemplating. Um, you can do that in the beginning of a practice. You can do it in the middle of the practice. You can do it at the end of the practice. Um, there's room for creativity there. Some of these contemplations are more discursive in nature. Uh, but if if developed, they can they can still take you to a very profound uh, meditative state and, and serenity itself. Um, and this would include the comp- contemplation of the body and even the five elements. So I, I have a friend who um, struggled with um, breath meditation uh, for several years. And when he ordained, or shortly after he ordained, he was talking with his teacher and his teacher told him just to completely set aside breath meditation for a while and devote himself uh, wholeheartedly to the contemplation of the five elements. Uh, and not just as a contemplation, but as a, as a meditation to develop mindfulness and concentration. And um, it has, it has that potential, you know. And any of these things, if we're uh, picking them up with the intention of developing mindfulness and overcoming the hindrances, they're suitable themes. Like the very fact that the Buddha is calling these out as suitable themes to practice has a few different implications. And one is like you're you're developing. They're, they're connected enough with the path and the goal of the path that uh, there's always the possibility that one can even glide into or fall into a state of serenity. There's many times where I've been contemplating these and there's just something, something about them and the contemplation of them that's cooling 
and it starts to cool the restlessness. It arouses the proper sense of uh, energy that one needs to concentrate the mind. It takes memory and it takes mindfulness uh, and concentration to to develop that concentration, to stay with it in a way that is uh, sincere. And and sometimes you could be working with that and and then all of a sudden you just notice the mind, like the hindrances starting to weaken and the mind sort of starting to move to uh, an increase in the strength of the uh, jhana factors. So like joy and happiness and a sense of ease can start to arise. And for me, most often, my mind would maybe then go to a more refined object like the breath, but there are uh, teachers that talk about, you know, entering uh, the jhanas even on on these themes or like on using sort of metta bhavana or the contemplation of the elements. At some point, the mind can go into a very deep and sort of serene state. Uh, other teachers talk about the experience of being in a very serene state. And because these things are on your mind, you're, you're nurturing a curiosity to try to understand the Dhamma. Uh, the mind, you might be meditating on the breath or in some other way and enter a very serene, lucid sort of state where mindfulness is purified and quite unbidden, these things come to mind. Or as you're coming out, they come to mind and you're in this kind of uh, unique place with fresh eyes, if you will, and uh, a clarified vision to sort of re-examine your your understanding, your relationship to these things and that is fertile ground for, for new insights to arise. So there's this, I think, hard to find, hard to find sort of dynamic between the, the various forms of meditation and also the, the two, what might we talk about the two goals or the two main goals of meditation, which is serenity and insight. Um, and you, know, you can feel practice to, I mean, you can feel free to sort of be a bit creative and experiment and, and see what works for oneself. Uh, I think oftentimes we want something that's like color by numbers or very detailed map, very detailed sort of instructions, but um, that's really kind of hard to come by. Um, you might find a meditation master who has a very methodical worked out sort of way to practice and they'll, he'll guide you through that, but such people are few and far between. And, you know, really, uh, my kind of reading of the suttas is one does not need that. Um, it's useful to have good teachers, but if you just keep applying yourself and putting forth effort and refining your understanding of uh, the role of practice, the goals of practice, you'll get there. So, uh, see, I see a hand here. Go ahead. Uh, I think that's Bob. Bob, did you want to say something or was there a follow-up question? Thank you. I had to unmute myself here. Okay. Um, 
I had my interview with Ajahn Sona today, and we were, I was talking about practice over the last year, mm. and I've <clears throat> I've done um, a a lot of work with the five subjects for daily reflection, mm-hmm. and uh, I commented to him that the practice has been uh, pretty dark, mm-hmm. and he said, "Well, don't do that." And uh, I wondered in the context of body contemplations, um, is there a a lighter form? Mm, I don't think so. I mean, at least not most of the teachings I've seen. I mean, I think one needs to be kind of in a fairly bright place. And a lot of teachers um, give similar advice. They say, you know, if if you're in a place where there's a lot of uh, darkness coming up or this is bringing up fear or anxiety or something. They, they encourage you to move away from that and to move to sort of lighter, brighter kind of meditations like Metabahawana or something. Okay. So, well, thank you. That was his advice this morning too. So I just wondered specifically since we're talking about the body. So, but that's a help. Yeah. And thank as you. practitioners, we, as we move through our lives, we, we find ourselves in all kinds of places and certain of these practices are more uh, appropriate at different times in our lives than others. So, you know, there's, there's like, there's no need for you to need to be doing this right now if it's not sort of le- leading to a, an increase in wholesome, skillful sort of states of mind. There's many other completely <laughs> valid ways to be kind of putting forth effort and developing your practice. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think we have time for maybe one more and um, I'll carry some of these questions on to be considered with uh, the questions that come in for tomorrow, but we'll have maybe one last question here. This is from uh, Willie. Kunert in Cornwall, Vermont. I have a question about the sentry. On one hand, I really appreciate the idea of this and find it helpful. And on the other hand, I find it conflictual with the teaching of metta. I have been primarily practicing metta meditation. And one aspect I have been trying to cultivate is to view nothing as an enemy, to befriend my entire mind and experience. This has been powerful and helpful. Thus, when Ajahn Sona spoke about the sentry, seeing something as enemy, some things as enemies and some things as welcome friends, I was confused. Thank you so much. So, um, so Willie, I would, I would say, uh, you know, maybe, maybe this idea of the sentry is really kind of, to be applied to the things that you can't befriend uh, on one hand. Mm, like the sentry is watching over the mind and his, uh, the discrimination or discernment that he's exercising is kind of knowing a friend from foe. And if, if there's things, uh, you know, we're talking about sense contact here. So if there's sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, ideas, um, that you can kind of befriend, and there's no 
uh, unskillful or harmful uh, emotional states or negative states of mind that are generated by allowing those into consciousness and giving your attention to them, we might say, um, then they cease to be enemies. Um, they're not inherently an enemy. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's quite fine. But, you know, if there's things that you're not able to, then uh, the Buddha's encouragement isn't just to let them in anyways or just to give your attention over to them. Uh, you want to rely on maybe uh, keeping them out and continuing to sort of strengthen and develop your practice so that at some point they cease to be um, something of a challenge to one. So, and you know, you maybe also just to be clear, you don't want to be befriending anger um, or just tolerating these things. Uh, You don't want to tolerate greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. So um, it's hard to know what you mean by befriending, but my, my guess is you're able to transform the mind strong enough and you're able to transform uh, something that might have previously been a challenge or that's a challenge for many people, um, say a painful sight, a painful idea, etc. It's not something that causes undue uh, stress or suffering or unskillful mind states. But, um, you know, if, if we're talking about um, anger, the Buddha's encouragement is not to befriend it in the way that you say you just tolerate it. Um, you know, the, the encouragement is to resolve it. Um, or in the strongest language, it says I, to do away with it. But uh, the word I like is resolve it. Find a way to free yourself from it. Find a way to resolve that, to get back to skillful states of mind and continue strengthening the practice and bettering yourself. So I hope that helps. And we have two questions that we'll hold over for tomorrow. And we're out of time for today. Thank you all for your questions and participation. Uh, just a reminder, there should be something in the show notes for submitting questions for uh, tomorrow. Have those in by 9 a.m. And we'll consider the best of those uh, according to the theme and also prioritizing a little bit based on Ajahn Sona's uh, Dhamma talk from tonight. So uh, wish you well in your continued practice. And for those on the retreat, we'll see you at the evening meditation at 7 p.m. And then Ajahn Sona's next talk will premiere at 8.15 tonight. So thank you and have a good afternoon and a good evening.